This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. In the last 10 years, we've watched the rise and fall of several famous evangelical preachers. But Michael Kruger, president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, says the problem is bigger than even the investigative reports would suggest. He argues that many more cases of spiritual abuse will never be covered in the podcasts. And he also contends that a big part of the problem is you and me. Quote, We would rather have a leader who will beat up our enemies than one who will tenderly care for the sheep. Kruger writes in his new book, Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church, published by Zondervan. He continues, It's not that different from the person who decides to buy a pit bull as a family pet. It may be cool to have a tough dog, and it may protect you from burglars, but eventually it may maul a member of your own family. Now, spiritual abuse is a relatively new and amorphous concept, at least as a term, and Kruger defines it this way. Spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader, such as a pastor, elder, or head of a Christian organization, wields his position of spiritual authority in such a way that he manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those under him as a means of maintaining his own power and control, even if he is convinced he is seeking biblical and kingdom-related goals. Now, In other words, it's the opposite of Jesus in his paradoxical ministry model. He didn't lead by demanding his rights, but by giving them up. Well, Mike Kruger joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss how to train pastors who won't abuse their flocks, why he focuses on reformed churches, whether he's changed his own leadership, and more. Mike, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks, Colin. It's uh, good to be with you, and it's it's surreal to hear my own quotes read back to me there, so... (laughs) There you go. Well, we'll we'll see some more of that here as well. Yeah. Now, Mike, this isn't exactly in your traditional wheelhouse as an academic writer. Why did you take up the subject of spiritual abuse? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And and this is one of the most common questions that I get now, because obviously most of my writing has been on things related to the early Christian movement, origins of the canon, authority of the Bible. And that still is, of course, uh, the area I continue to do research on. And I'm working on a project right now, actually, related to that. But I also am uh, a seminary professor and a seminary president, and so we think a lot about leadership around here, and we do our best to keep track of what's going on in churches, and not just Reformed churches, but evangelical churches, churches in particularly in America and even around the globe to some extent. And I've just been seeing, and I think I'm not alone, uh, a certain trend over the last decade or so where there's a certain type of leadership style that has risen to the fore, and it's not been healthy 
as a whole. And so I've watched the implosion of some major leaders out there, but I've also seen it more and more in my own circles just pop up uh, this sort of uh, heavy handed authoritarian style. And so I decided to take a closer look at it. And as I've done that, I've become more and more convinced that we need to rethink the kind of leaders we're producing in the church today. What's the most surprising thing you found as you were researching? Well, I don't even know where to start there. I think I was surprised at how many people feel like when you describe spiritual abuse that they say, whoa, wait a second, that's you just described my pastor. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had that way. When I did my blog series a, a year or more ago, I was absolutely inundated, uh, almost tsunami with with emails from people around the country saying, are you talking about my church? Are, wait, are you are you are you describing? Are you aware of my scenario? They thought I was actually describing their pastor, and you know, of course, I don't know who these people are. I, I hadn't met them, but it's amazing how when you lay out the pattern, people just sort of perk up and resonate in a way that's almost eerie. Um, and so, I think one of the things that surprised me is just how much it's resonating with people. In other words, you could bring up a topic in the Christian space where people just kind of shrug and go, "Huh, interesting." I don't really think much about that, but that's not what's happened. Instead, as soon as I bring it up, everyone's like got something to say about it. Well, that's actually one of the questions I was planning to ask you later here, Mike. But why do abusive pastors seem to do the same things? <laughs> you mentioned it's like they study the same playbook. That's exactly what you're talking about right here. Yeah. Are you describing my pastor? Somebody must have yeah. given you like this as a case study. Exactly. How could you be so accurate there? Is this a deliberate strategy that somehow you know, circulates, or is this some sort of psychological condition, the theological nature of the fall? I, I, how how do you categorize it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know that I really tried to answer that in the book, although I think it's worth asking. The, the, the similarities are so, so there that you have to sort of come up with an explanation for it. I have a few thoughts on that. One is, I do think, and I do talk about this in the book, I think we have, have, have sought after a certain leadership style. To, to lead our churches. And I call this sort of the church franchise player. So just like you want to make a sports team or organization amazing, well, you just get an amazing player and you build the team around them. Um, and we followed that model, sort of a CEO, you know, you know, kind of LeBron James, big sports star model. We adopted it in the church. And so you're going to attract a certain kind of personality type. That itself could explain some of the continuity among the problems because you're attracting a certain category of leader. The, the other thing is that, that, that the kind of, people who tend to be abusive tend to have a certain personality style themselves. And there's been a lot of talk about narcissism in the last uh, few years for a lot of reasons. And I think, you know, when you look at narcissistic tendencies, you can map them out and you can develop patterns and you can see how it manifests itself in the church. So I think there's probably some explanation in, in those two things. But I, I, I mean, if you have ideas, <laughs> I'm totally open to it. I don't quite know. And I think it's one of those almost creepy mysteries of the whole thing because it's so similar. How much of this has to do, Mike, with the rise of church planting? especially in the last 25 years. Not that it's a brand new thing, but we know that a lot of the assessment tools used for church planting have tended toward this specific kind of leadership style. And you can go back whether it's more of reformed style church planting, but you can look and see, I used to work at Leadership Journal for Christianity Today, and it goes all the way back to that Harvard Business Review CEO style from Heibels and, and others. So it's not just one kind of personality. Per se, no, I mean, that's Bill, right. Bill Hybels and and James McDonald are really not similar, except that they were almost next door to each other in Chicago, and both of them fell in very different ways, but around the same time, and both had started their churches. I, I 
I am just wondering how much of it has to do with the specific way we're looking for those kinds of church planters. I can say this in rural South Dakota, Methodist churches, you weren't looking for CEO types. You're looking for like chaplain shepherd types. So it's, it doesn't appear to be universal for all times and places. No. Well, several things there. First, you're right. As far as the presenting personality between Hybels and McDonald, very different. Although when you dig into their stories, actually, you find out they're a lot more similar than you realize. Um, Hybels is mainly known for the sexual uh, abuse that was happening, but actually built into the story was a was a number of cases of spiritual abuse, too. And it was mostly done behind closed doors, so to speak, in terms of the way he treated his staff. Uh, McDonald was much more sort of out in the open with it. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of a difference on one level. On another level, they're, they're maybe more similar than we realize. But you, you, you raise a really interesting point, though, Colin, I think, about church planting. I didn't talk about this in the book, but I think there has been clearly a church planting movement in reform spaces. And then on top of that, we have looked for a certain style of person to do church planting. We want someone who's entrepreneurial, who's a go-getter, who's out there, who's proactive, who's energetic, who's able to get things done. And, and look, many of those are good things. I'm not suggesting those are irrelevant things. But 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 if you just build an entire church planning movement around that particular type of person, it's not surprising that that type of person ends up perhaps having some tendencies that end up coming up later. And I think that's an excellent point. Now, let me take a step back of the overall issue. I'm sure another common question that you receive is the problem anecdotal or statistical? And maybe another way to ask this is, are we facing more spiritual abuse today or do we just know about more spiritual abuse? Oh, yeah. This is this is a, a really good question. I bring this up in the book, and and my answer is a is a big, a big I don't know, <laughs> and I say that in the book plainly. There's not been any sort of significant statistical studies on spiritual abuse. There have been some in England, out of Burnmouth University, but but the the, the type of of statistical study they did wasn't really useful uh, to to look at the stats across the board. Um, and so there's a question: Is there a rise of spiritual abuse, or is there a rise of awareness and how much does social media play into it? So in other words, you could argue it's been this way forever. It was this way in 1950. It was this way in 1850. And we're just, we just learn more about it. Okay. Let's imagine for a moment that's true. And it could be, I'm not saying it isn't. We still need to address it. <laughs> whether, whether it's just an awareness issue. I mean, think about sexual abuse. I mean, you know, we don't know whether sexual abuse is more common now than it was in say 1950, but, but we know about it now more. And by golly, I don't think anyone would say, therefore, we're not going to, since it's always been there, let's ignore it. And so similarly, even if it has been there for for generations at the same rate, I think we still have an issue that we need to address. Um, I do make the point in the book, of course, that that spiritual abuse as a concept has been there since the fall, right? And by that, I mean, people lorded over other people in sinful ways by virtue of our fallen hearts. And so in one sense, there's always been spiritual abuse. Now, all that said, anecdotally, and I don't have any statistics to back this up, I do think there's a spike. Um, I think there's this, and I, you know, I, that's just my gut. I didn't put it in the book, but just talking to you, I do think there seems to be something in, in the water, and I think we should take a closer look at that. Okay, so related to that, both you and I teach in, teach in seminaries, we're training pastors. Are we doing anything in training of ministers right now that inclines them towards spiritual abuse? This is, this is an interesting question of commission and omission. So you, you're, you're bringing up the commission side, which I'll, I'll mention in a moment. I think I'll start, if I can, with the omission side. I think up to this point, we're not helping ourselves because we simply don't address it. Okay, here I am at Reformed Theological Seminary. I, I love RTS. I think we do a really good job at training ministers. Um, but, but I also know that every institution can grow and improve. 
and this is a hole in our game. We need to do a better job of dealing with it in our curriculum. And so part of the problem in seminaries is that it just is, is unaddressed. It just isn't even talked about, right? I mean, I and, and before the last five years, I wasn't even thinking about it. I'm the president of the seminary. So there's no way our students are thinking about it. Okay, so that's the omission side. Now, commission side, this is interesting. And, I, you know, I, maybe you have thoughts too. I mean, I think we probably don't emphasize character enough in terms of calling. Um, and I do talk about this in the book is, you know, we tend to emphasize uh, giftedness and we tend to emphasize ability um, and maybe not emphasize character. I think there's probably a delicate line around the way we talk about church authority. And I don't have a full you know, moment here where I can get into all that because I don't even know if I formulated it all in my own head. But I do think we are we are somewhat defensive about the lack of respect for the church in our modern culture. And sometimes you try to fix that that problem by really emphasizing church authority. And when you really emphasize church authority as a way to fix a culture that's anti-authority, you end up running the danger, at least, of pressing authority in such a way as it becomes unhealthy. So I do do have a thought on this, and it's related to why I started doing a series of books, um, 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me, 12 Faithful Men, um, and then as well as a book called Faithful Endurance. I wasn't seeing so much the, the spiritual abuse aspect. I was seeing young ministers who just kind of left ministry already by their 20s or 30s, even after their training, when things got really difficult for them. And they seem to have been very surprised that people did not like them. <laughs> and it made me think, Interesting. maybe yeah. we need to change how we help prospective young ministers discern a call. So I think what we often do is that we observe gifted young teachers for the results. So we see somebody who's teaching in high school, even college, something like that, and we say, wow, you're really good at this. And they seem to be affirmed, not only by authority figures, but also by just, you know, the results that they see, maybe people coming to faith. I wonder if I think we, I see where you're going here. Yeah, I wonder if we should instead explain that you're called to ministry if you, if you know how to love your enemies, especially when they sit in the pews next to your family. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I I think you're 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 spot on. I, I don't say it quite that way in the book, but I do talk about how we need to recapture this idea that that ministry is a call to suffer, and it's a call to serve. And one of the things I point out, which I think honestly needs to be pointed out more, we usually associate servanthood qualities with deacons and not with elders. So if you have a servant heart, we shove you over to the deacon side. And we tend to think that's somehow incongruent with being an elder or a pastor. And I point out in the book that, that, that in the leadership qualifications for ordination and the way Jesus talks about leadership and in many other passages, that's simply not the case. Jesus describes his own ministry as a ministry of being a servant or a slave. So there has to be a sense in which we we shift around on that and, and help people realize, look, if you're called to the ministry, here's the way you should think of yourself. Right. And so um, I had a, I did a lecture in, in Manhattan last week on on spiritual abuse when I was there and I had a very perceptive question from the audience when they said, how much of ministers? It's not just that you're you're, you're, you're analyzing their character, but when you analyze a future minister, are you analyzing their own um, sort of spiritual stability or uh, I don't want to use the word mental health because mental health makes this sound all psychological, psychological, but. Are they themselves coming out of sort of scarred backgrounds and difficult situations where ministry is their way of making up for these things? Are we even talking about that? And I thought that was really interesting because I think we, we don't ever born of those those matters. Yeah, I, I think the 
seminary students who I love and was one as you were, um, it's not exactly a normal cross section of the human race. I don't That's feel right. it's already you, been been sort of curated here in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. You, you get you do tend to attract some extreme personalities. I think in seminaries. And so I think, I think that's something that would be very wise for us to practice in terms of maybe not so much in our admissions, but at least in terms of the shepherding that we give to, to our students in those environments. Um, Here at Beeson, there was a a Southern Baptist observer once who said, uh, I was, he was going to be lecturing here and I was driving with him in the car and he said, you know, you guys' problem at Beeson is that, you don't train any famous preachers. Where are your famous preachers? We don't know them. That's why nobody goes to your school. And I said, well, I think that's kind of the point. <laughs> like we, we, we have a culture that does not socialize celebrity in part because of the example that we had in Timothy George, who was a kind of servant as that's a leader. exactly right. Leadership sets the tone of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think... You know, I love Southern Baptists. I'm a Baptist myself, but I can see some of the some of the differences there in different cultures of training and identifying, and kind of like what's incentivized and what's rewarded um, in uh, in those leaders. And I should say that this the person that was making this comment to me has himself gone through really really difficult things as a celebrity since that comment um, and wonder if he would he would have some different observations at this at this point in his career well i mean one thing you raise there which i think is important is that the, the, the celebrity phenomenon isn't just about the individual who who call, who becomes a so-called celebrity pastor the phenomenon is actually about a church or a church culture that wants a exactly. celebrity as their yeah. pastor yeah and so in one sense it's not that celebrity pastors are self-appointed, but in one sense, they're they're made. <laughs> we can say it this way: they're not without their responsibility, but they're but they're made by a culture that cheers them on as a celebrity. And so, the problem isn't just the the the, the, the pastors that fall into this; it's the churches that fall into this and are look actually they're just looking for someone like that and this is of course the point i make in the book are we looking for the right kind of leaders let's talk about reformed churches specifically are reformed churches more or somehow uniquely inclined to tolerate or even celebrate spiritual abuse this is really an interesting question um so i didn't address that in the book um my book was generically about uh, what we might call evangelical churches although certainly it was obvious i think in the context that many of the churches that I am aware of that struggle with this probably would be considered at least broadly reformed in some sense. But that wasn't, of course, the aim of the book to answer the question of whether reformed theology is distinctively susceptible to this. So, but I do have a couple thoughts. One, one thought is that reformed theology itself, not reformed culture, reformed theology itself is the solution, not the problem. And what I mean by that is understood properly, reformed theology should bring humility, should bring, uh, uh, in, in one sense, a person who's looking to be a humble servant rather than someone who's prideful and, 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 and arrogant, because if you understand Reformed theology, that that should naturally lead to that. So the problem isn't Reformed theology, but I think we all have to be honest that there is a, a factor in some Reformed cultures that's problematic in this regard. And I wrote an article recently, just a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, was on being winsomely Reformed. And I pointed out in that article that Look, reform folks don't always have the best reputation for being the kindest, gentlest, humble people. Okay. And uh Frame wrote an article years ago called Machen's Warrior Children. 
you know, and I think he would say something similar to me, which is that properly understood Reformed theology is is not the problem, but but there is something in the water in some of these Reformed cultures. Do, can I explain why that's the case? I, I don't have an answer, but I think we need to be honest in the Reformed world about it. RTS has been honest about it in the sense that we've emphasized being winsomely Reformed because we recognize that problem. We want people to be Reformed, yes, but also kind, gentle, humble, servant-hearted and not quarrelsome and, the, and, and those kinds of folks are, are uh, seemingly harder and harder to find i think the simplest way i'd put it mike is knowledge puffs up right so yeah. we understand biblically and reformed theology often comes with it certain intellectual pursuits it's often an opt-in in terms of academic and abstract thinking it often appeals to people who are not exclusively so, but often appeals to people who are higher in the socioeconomic uh, spectrum there, especially in certain reformed denominations. And I think all that kind of combines in a way of emphasizing a certain kind of sense of superiority, which then your currency of fame and achievement is your intellectual pursuits and perhaps also then your polemics. Yep, I think that's very fair. Easily then issues itself in a way of lording those things over your flock, I would say. And if that's true, and I think I think you make good points there, then reform folks need to be proactive in making sure when we train people in seminary context that we're aware that we might have attracted more of that kind of person than the average seminary and then do extra work to try to compensate for that when we train people for future ministry. And I don't know that we're doing that. Well, that's what I was going to say. Let's give me, I mean, that was my next question was going to be, give me something that you have changed or would change in your seminary to train pastors who would be distinguished for caring well for their flock. Yeah. Well, we're actually looking at this right now in terms of some curriculum changes. Um, I do think they need to be taught about the problem of spiritual abuse and I actually wrote my book hoping it could be used certainly in some classes here, but maybe classes in other places to try to be at least a starting point for some of that instruction. By no means do I think my book is enough or even sufficient to do all that needs to be done. Um, I think we need to have a, a recalibrate the way we teach leadership in pastoral ministry and how we constitute the use and in, in proper use of authority. And I don't think we're talking about that. I think what we're talking about is more of a defense against culture, like, oh, we really do have authority. The church has authority. Let's not be anti-authority. And, and look, that 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 argument has its place. But then we stop there. We don't ever actually look at the abuse of authority. So there's two sides of it. There's the abdication of authority. That's what seminaries mostly talk about. But then there's the misuse of authority, which seminaries rarely talk about. And ironically, when Jesus was on earth, he talked a lot more about the misuse of authority than its abdication, interestingly. I'm sure that if you sat down and interviewed Jesus, he would be willing to admit that both are problems. But in his day, the problem was mainly abuse of authority, not abdication. And so I just think it's interesting that we don't talk about that. Um, So those would be a few preliminary thoughts. My podcast is always open for a guest appearance from Jesus. And just so people people know anytime. Wouldn't it be great to interview Jesus? (laughs) We all want that. I've got a few questions for you, Jesus. Hold these in my pocket. Problem is he's uh, got some questions for me too. Um, Now, Mike, why? I I think I have an answer to this question, but why don't elders want to do anything to stop spiritual abuse, even when they know it's happening? Oh boy. Well, you know, I have a chapter in my book on why churches don't stop spiritual abuse. And one of the things I point out is, well, there's many things. I think there's a number of misunderstandings there. 
Um, and I, I want to be clear on this. Different different elders have different levels of culpability here. There's some that I think fall into the category of unaware, just uninformed and, and, and doing their best to think the best of everybody. OK, and, and I think there's a level of naivete there, but but at least as far as culpability goes, that would not be as high a level of culpability. There's other elders out there, and I think we've seen this in some of the high-profile cases, that are proactively defending people that they know have committed serious sin against other people. And much of that is done for several reasons. One of it's done because they think that's protecting the church and protecting the name of Jesus, protecting the cause of Christ, which I think it's doing the opposite of that. And there's personal involvement. They know the person who's the leader. They probably have a friendship with that person and want to help that person's ministry not go down in flames. And so you know, is it is it bad to have friends you want to do good for? No, but what's best for that person? To protect their ministry of abuse or to help them repent and and recover from whatever they're 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 caught up in. And so it's a miscalculation of what friendship entails. So so in terms of why they don't stop it, I think there's different levels of culpability. Now of course in my book I talk about how I think there's a misunderstanding of grace, I think there's a misunderstanding of total depravity. I think there's a misunderstanding of um, of, of what reconciliation means. So I, I think there is a lot of other stuff in that. And we could go down any of those tributaries. I don't know how deep you want to go into this question, but I think it's a complex matter. Well, I'll just add a couple that come up, um, I think, pretty often that I don't think many that would occur to many people. You know, I asked a question specifically referring to even when they know it's happening. Of course, yeah. your book talks a lot about how they don't know that it's yeah. happening because a spiritual abuser does not abuse everybody. Exactly. And doesn't abuse everybody all the time. So we know many examples where an elder might say, that's not what he does with me. But that's the most common thing we hear. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly. him. he doesn't do that with me. He doesn't do that with me. And then you're like, well, of course, he doesn't do this to everybody. <laughs> you might not be the profile of the person that he would be picking on, that he would right. be marking for this. Um, but I think there's, you do mention some of this in the book as well. One is that abuse tends to be on a spectrum. It's hard to mm -hmm. know exactly when it starts as abuse yep. and kind of tips into the tips into that problem. Um, as opposed to, I think you've mentioned this, others have mentioned this as well. If you steal money, you stole money. Um, if you the cheat on your wife, correct. You, yes. Exactly. So there's a yes. subjectivity. It's not just abuse. Um, and yes, forms of I mean, there are forms of abuse that are very clear, bright lines. That's one of the challenges of spiritual abuse is it's not like when does just maybe heavy handed, correct? Yeah. You know, or or, right. yeah. or difficult personality lead yep. off in a spiritual abuse. So I think there's a, a subjectivity about when that and exactly they, and, and happens. For, think about it this way: when you have a an elder looking for an, an exit. And yeah. the problem of spiritual abuse, he wants there to be another explanation, right? Because yeah. who, who who wants the, the guy to be abusive? They're going to take any port in the storm here. So they're going to take the port of, well, sometimes people get their feathers ruffled by strong leaders. You know, sometimes maybe he was a little bit too direct. Sometimes people don't like the truth and they're overly sensitive. He'll tell himself many things to keep him from having to deal with the problem of an abusive leader. And so. explain the insight you brought in from Gladwell in the oh, book. Oh, yeah. This is fascinating. So Malcolm Gladwell's wrote a very, you know, it's a very famous author, not a Christian, just to be clear, but I think full of common grace insights. Well, he and is he, an Anabaptist by background. He's a Mennonite. So okay, he's, a, he's, a, he's a practicing Mennonite from what he from what he told me. OK, well, let me put it this way. He doesn't say in the book that he's no, appealing to no, Christian not the principles. Um, fair enough. 
But uh, he he talks in his book, uh, Talking to Strangers, about how we as as human beings are actually really bad at spotting bad people. Uh, and we, not only are we bad at it, but we actually think we're good at it. And so it's a combination of both things. It's one that we aren't very good at, stop, at, at spotting bad people, but we're also convinced that we're really good at spotting bad people. And so that combination creates a number of really bad scenarios. And he goes through a lot of the very famous cases. Larry Nasser, right, with a the gymnast, which is sad, the Jerry Sandusky, Sandusky. case. Mm-hmm. And he said that these place, these instances had piles and piles of evidence of the guilt of these people and people still turned a blind eye to it. And the, the heart behind it was what he calls truth default theory, which is the idea that yep. you always assume the person in front of you is telling the truth. Um, and it's just a, it's a, it's an innate starting point for all of us. And he says, you know, generally speaking, in culture, that's not a bad thing. You don't want to go around thinking everyone's a criminal. But unless you have a truth teller, someone from outside that social network that can see things fresh, you're going to end up with a, um, you know, sort of a, a club policing themselves. And it never ends up uh, actually working. And so I thought he was very insightful. And what happens, Mike, to those of us who do not default to truth? Yeah. So he talks about uh, uh, a rare person called uh, basically a, a truth teller that's outside the both social and, and even sort of uh, uh, institutional matrix of a particular organization that's able to stand outside of the organization and maybe see things more clearly. And those, he says, you need those people around because they can spot stuff, see stuff and target stuff. Now, here's the problem is that they're also the very people who are often marginalized and and rejected when they do exactly. speak. Um, and so this is part of the problem. Is the truth teller, you need them, but the truth teller is the very person that's pushed aside uh, when uh, scandal happens. We saw it in the Robbie Zacharias thing. People were truth telling. There were whistleblowers and they were silenced, pushed down and kicked out. And uh, and I, I think it's it's the it's the right solution that, that Gladwell's onto. But the problem is we have an infrastructure that prosecutes the truth teller rather than prosecutes the abuser. And that that ends up being really um, un- that really that is really tragic. Just think about that. It's just really tragic. The person who sees and tells the truth is usually the one who pays the price. It, it is so true. Um, wh- one of the things that I learned in my research is um, how little I understood this. I used to think, I, you know, it's hard to know what you thought 10 years ago about anything. OK, you just look <laughs> back. But I, if I were to try to assess what I thought about whistleblowers 10 years ago, here's what I probably would have said. I probably would have said, I don't understand the problem. If it, if you're if you have if you see something evil and bad, stand up and speak the truth. Why are you so nervous? Why are you so scared about telling the truth? What's wrong with you whistleblower people? And I probably would have had this rather simplistic, naive, even condescending approach to whistleblowers. But after all my research, I, I now really do understand why whistleblowers don't come forward. I mean, I understand why they don't speak up. You know, people give this impression that everyone's like waiting in the wings to make accusations. That's not what my research showed. My research showed that there's people all over the place who have decided to stay silent um, because they know they're going to get creamed when they speak up. And I think that is the interesting and very sad phenomenon. It's one thing to have that in a corporate world. It's very unfortunate we have that in the church, and I think that's the thing that needs attention. Even if you're right, chances are you'll lose everything. This is exactly right. I actually had several people in abuse cases call me and ask me for advice on their abuse cases, um, and uh, they were the, they were the whistleblowers. And I, I actually gave several of them the advice or the observation you just made, which is I, I, I don't want to sound like Mr. Pessimistic, but you need to be prepared if you're going to come forward. You're going to probably lose your job. 
you're probably going to have your reputation tarnished and you're probably going to be um on the outs and that's a very hard thing to say to even somebody. even if you turn out that everything you said was correct you still can get labeled a troublemaker oh, yeah. or you know the, yeah. the even in the, the famous best troubler case of, troubler of, troubler yeah. of israel right even in the best case scenario if the verdict yeah. comes out on your side you're still going to get really really hurt by this and and oftentimes the best scenario doesn't happen with these these whistleblowers usually the truth never comes out and people just assume they were lying um yeah and that's especially really in the definition of whistleblower i mean you're the first i mean that's the challenge somebody has to be first and then after that there may be others who corroborate correct but it may be too late for those who are first um now, somebody listening might be wondering, maybe my pastor is a spiritual abuser. Mm. Uh, maybe somebody listening is wondering if he's a spiritual abuser himself. I would say for any of us, um, you know, I would describe myself, Mike, as being kind of on the, the stronger end of leadership, not necessarily just kind of how I, how I present, how I lead and things like that. Sure, I mean, sure. if, if, if somebody with my personality does not come under some level of conviction in your book, then there's some level of self-deception <laughs> going on in, in there. So. Um, but how do you know, I want to use an Edwardsian sense here, is there a sure sign of spiritual abuse? Yeah, well, that's really tricky, isn't it? A sure sign. That's like, that's like almost like asking, what's a sure sign that someone's prideful? Well, that's really tricky to assess, isn't it? Well, I think that's, that's, what, that's why I love Edward's religious affections, yeah. though, because there are certain things that somebody may do that may not be a sure sign of them being revived or a Christian, but there are certain things that you don't do unless you're a Christian. Yeah. Um, well, I think, it, yes, it is, it is tricky to, to lay all those out, but one of the things I bring up in the book, and I think probably one of the best indicators... I'm never going to say infallibly, but uh, certainly one of the best indicators of someone who has a, a problem of, of, of abusive behavior is someone with a significant train wreck of debris, relational debris behind them over many years. So in other words, if someone has a debris field of broken relationships, and by that I mean many over years unresolved, where someone wasn't just, just offended by a comment, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like lives wrecked um, over a period of time. So there's a wake in this person's ministry. That is typically a sign of something really, really wrong. Because now you have a person who has to say, every one of those people's the the, the problem but me after all those years. And that, that that's <laughs> oh, certainly yeah. possible, <laughs> yeah. but it's certainly very unlikely. Um, and I think that's probably the telltale sign. And how do those folks keep getting new jobs, Mike? Oh, man. I, I, well, part of the reason they keep getting new jobs because a lot of people don't know about the relational debris field. They don't ask. Uh, they don't ask. They don't ask, then, Mike, and they don't yeah. want to know. They don't yeah. ask and they don't want to know. Yeah, the people searching for that new pastor don't want to know. But, but even, if, even if they ask, the, 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 the victims may not have come forward publicly. In other words, they may just have left the church. Or they, or the, or they will actually just lie. They will just oh. say everything was fine. The elders, the, the members, they may, or the institution, they may lie to protect themselves from having oh. to go through anything more. They may say, no, 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 everything was great. They'll just that, lie about That it. happened more in my research than I exactly. thought. I was almost made queasy, if I could say it that way, by the number of, of instances where it was clear that, that the, the abusive leader just blatantly lied about yep. his past or about exactly. the, the victims. Um, and then obviously churches deflect and deceive too. And, and, uh, I think, you know, we're, what we're getting at here is the heartbreak of this. I mean, we all know this happens in the world. It happens in sports organizations, happens in corporate culture, but we're talking about the church of Jesus Christ. 
And no one here is not even, I think there's not sinners in the church of Jesus Christ. Of course there are. But when you have this sort of activity, obviously the point is we have to address it. We just can't let it be there and pretend it doesn't matter. And I think the tragedy of this and the real emotional spiritual damage is because it's a church. It's because these people represent God at some level that it does so much damage. Let me let me give the flip side, Mike, to your your the negative statement about the debris field. And that is the, the positive. A strong leader attracts and keeps other strong leaders. Okay, so people who might present as strong leaders were actually abusers. People will go to them because they don't know any better. But then there's the debris field. Okay. Um, now, if somebody's not a strong leader, people who are gifted strong leaders just don't want to go there. Right. They're just not attracted. That they see the problem, they don't go there. Um, but a strong leader will not only attract those people, but keep those people, and even better, often then send those Correct. people um, positively. They maintain those relationships. So maybe it's less of yes, the debris field. I think is a is a good sign. Um, but then the flip side is that that's what it looks like when it goes well. Yeah. So you could you you know you could ask the question, what sign of an unhealthy leader? And then you're asking the question, what's the sign of a healthy leader? Yeah. And they are the inverse of each other, right? A healthy leader has long track record of healthy relationships, where he has people who who've been blessed by him and send them out. Not perfect relationships, but healthy relationships that uh, that you can you can track too. And and so yeah, I think those are two two inverses of one another. And I think it's important to note as well that a a strong and gifted leader will not have the debris field but will have possibly a history of confrontation because that's actually something that a good leader does is a confront problems <laughs> deal with problems so sometimes oh, yeah. there will be there will be a history of conflict but not necessarily for bad reasons but precisely because they refused to overlook um problems yeah that's right yeah there's sense. no such thing as a is a is a as a ministry involving leadership that's that's conflict free if there were i would love to sign up for it <laughs> uh, because you're just dealing with an organization with people that need to be led sometimes they need to be corrected sometimes things need to be challenged and then sometimes there's missteps missteps of people towards us miss missteps from us towards them um and i cover some of this in the book where i say look we're not talking about some pristine situation where we're you know anytime there's a there's a relational conflict that we just keep the label abuse on it no we're, we're talking about something that clearly can be demonstrated over time and look for leaders who apologize and not just oh, when they're caught yes this is a humble repentant leader it's amazing how many of the cases i study could have been averted if someone had just repented because actually the people who've been hurt would be <laughs> it's amazing how yeah. gracious but most people yeah. are just remarkably gracious just want an apology you yeah. know and it's when you circle the wagons that that you end up actually making it worse. Um, and that is, of course, unfortunately, one of the common tactics. I do have a few more questions I want to get through, so I'm going to keep yes. going. Um, I hear from seminary leaders that young men no longer want to be lead pastors, at least at the same level, after what they've seen from the fall of famous preachers. Now, this might not be the case at RTS the same way that I've heard it from elsewhere. Are you concerned that we might not be able to find young men who want to lead churches in light of some of that broader concern? No, no I'm not. Um, you know, when I, when I have young guys come to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm more hesitant now to take on that mantle of leadership too young, I think that's a good sign. Well, too young is the key yes, right there, right. too young. That's where the church planting often comes in. Right. Too. They might recognize 
it, it, th- th- of course, they can make the decision for lots of reasons. But if they, if they recognize, wait a second, I probably need time to grow. I need time to mature. I need time to learn how to handle things. And and then when I'm and then when I feel like I'm in a better place, maybe I could take that on. So they're not rushing into the uh, the, the senior leadership role, I think, can be very healthy. I, I often t- say to people that the kind of person you want leading your organization is almost the kind of person that's a little bit reluctant to do it. And when I say that, I have to qualify what I mean. Obviously, you don't want reluctant leaders who aren't you know, feeling called by God to do the job. That's not what I mean. But what I am saying is, is that for the person who's power hungry, they're grabbing a hold of opportunities when they come along, almost like I just got to climb up the ladder. Those are the kind of people that make you really nervous. So a little more hesitancy may be healthy. Uh, now, on the flip side, you could spin into unhealth. I mean, if people feel like I could never be a leader because I'm always attacked, I don't want that either. Uh, but I don't think that's the issue here with spiritual abuse. I don't think the, the, the main problem is is that. I think the main problem is the lack of accountability. Parallel here would be marriage, right? Like you don't want somebody who says, oh, there's nothing to worry about. I'm completely ready for it without even thinking about it. At the same time, you don't want somebody who says, no, I'm definitely not ready. Well, like, well, you're never going to be ready. That's exactly. exactly. That's a good analogy. Yeah. So whether marriage or kids, same thing. You want somebody who has some sense of what they're getting into, some sense of the gravity of it. Yeah, some some level of, uh, of, of, of a posture of humility, like I'm going into this feeling inadequate. And and that you want that feeling at some level. Yeah, so. I think that that makes perfect sense. That's a that's a positive sign. Um, that's a, a positive sign. But then also still trusting to walk before the Lord in mm-hmm. in, in, in obedience to His call. That's right. Um, now uh, this one, Mike, I I just gotta beg. I'm begging churches to do this. Begging them. Okay, let's be clear. You write this, if elder boards are to have an accurate portrayal of their own pastor's performance and character, then they need to have a careful annual review process by which feedback is communicated and relayed to the overall leadership body without the potential of reprisal upon those bringing the feedback. Oh, yeah. Mike, in my experience, this almost never happens. Almost never happens in Christian organizations. Okay? It seems so basic. It does, but it doesn't it? Never, it almost never happens. Tell us more of what this should look like. And I, and I got to add two things in here that you highlight in the book. It needs to include women. Oh, there man, must yes. be women in this oh, review process, yes. okay? Number one. And number two, it can't just be your friends. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, the system. Look, I mean, the system is really uh, broken at a number of places. Just by God's sheer grace that most just because I think to be clear, and I want your your listeners to know this. I think the vast majority of pastors are wonderful people who are godly, who love their. So there's nothing to fear in this review process. Well, well, (laughs) what I want to say is, is that I think the vast majority of church uh, pastors are godly. So even though you have broken review processes across the landscape, most churches can weather that. Because their their pastor's actually godly. Yeah, there's not there's but, no problem. But, right. There's no but problem. The, but the problem is you you put the review process in place to deal with the problems before they blow up in yes. your face. Yes. And so this is I think you're exactly right. I was stunned to learn how few churches do this. It seems so self-evident, um, but it really is so critical. And so yeah, you've got to have a 360 review, the people under you, the people around you, not just your buddies, not just your fellow elders. Include women, include people who are subordinate to you. There has to be a level of anonymity. And then here's the real kicker. The whole elder board needs to get the reviews. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations where the board never sees the reviews. It's it's cordoned off on a little subcommittee, typically called a personnel committee, where there's like three people that see them and they keep everything under wraps. Um, and it goes on for years and years and years. And then when it finally blows up, guess what the rest of the elder board says? They say, oh, this can't be true because we've never heard about this before. And you're like, well, you've never heard about it because it's been covered up. And so there's a bit of a of a no-win situation there, right? Um, and so it really needs to be uh, improved. And guess who ended up on the personnel committee? The people who are closest to the pastor. Oh, yeah, exactly. His or, the, or the leader. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly. not exclusive to any specific situation here. It's just, it's, I mean, I, I think um, what I want people to know is that when you're in leadership and even in healthy leadership situations, you still see a ton of the difficulties out there. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's actually people have experience in the church who should be the most likely to get behind what you're saying because they've seen the problems. That they they I, know I the problems so. and have been and, and even to be clear, I think a lot of readers have been part of the problem too. At some level, they may look at this and say, "Oh man, we've never done a review process in our church or in my ministry or whatever, or we did one and it oh yeah, you're right, I, we've never shared that." It's not because they're 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 nefarious necessarily, exactly. just, but yeah. it's it's in place. For the situation that does come later, exactly what you just said, right? You know, the other thing I bring up too is it's not only important to do a review of the senior pastor or the leader, whatever the situation may be, but it's also really important that he does a review of his staff. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Because you need a record of that relationship over time. Because when he's challenged, what inevitably happens is a retaliation against the staff making accusations but if you have five to ten years of good reviews and and then suddenly all these accusations are coming out of the woodwork you realize wait a second this is retaliatory that is really important i can't tell you how many cases i saw where that was not being done exactly the the review of subordinate staff is to protect the subordinate staff exactly exactly (laughs) and And the subordinate staff don't even know that they think oh i don't like reviews i mean who likes reviews but i want to tell them look you want to do this buddy you want to get in there and, you know, even if there's a little bit of uncomfortability to it, believe me, over the long run, this is going to protect you um, as, a, as a staff member. It's an important thing to do. Last question. How's your leadership, Mike, changed over the years? That's a, that's a really good question and a good question to end on. Um, I think writing this book has, I hope, and I pray that this is helping me too be a better leader. Um, I, I think about things now in new ways that I didn't think about before. I think one of the things that I'm learning as a leader, and I kind of already knew this and certainly would have would have checked the box properly on a quiz about this, is that as leaders, our words just have more impact than we realize. They they, they have more power than we realize. Um, and we tend to think they, eh, you know, people aren't really listening to me or they don't really matter. No, I mean, the way you interact with people, the way you talk to people, the way you speak, the things you say really hold weight. Are we going to make mistakes? Of course, but we need to be quick to repent and apologize when we do. But I think what I've learned is I, I, I've just learned to try to, to be more aware of that. And I think the Lord is using the research I did for this book to make me hopefully uh, a better shepherd and a better leader and hopefully more embodying Christ. And and and, and I, I pray that's the case. And I pray, you know, my main goal for the book is that if, if people can use this book, that they'll be hopefully themselves encouraged to be more like Jesus as a shepherd down the road. So, yeah, I count myself in the mix with everybody else. I want to grow uh, and learn uh, just like uh, I hope other people can do. Yeah, not every kind of leadership in the world 
involves a lot of words or a lot of speaking or a lot of communicating communicating but in the church it does almost always it's so relationally heavy yeah it's relationally heavy it's teaching heavy it's words heavy it's just it's it's throwaway conversations it's leading a small group it's preaching it's counseling i i got to agree mike Uh, that is that is the that is the area that stands out for me as well, especially in the last five to ten years of having to switch to understand that what may not have seen as like a big deal to me at all. Yeah, was you can a really, really hurt people big and not deal realize it. Yeah, to someone else, sometimes even something that I didn't even remember. I remember one of my closest friends in the church, um, a woman I'd seen flourish under in our church and in our small group and everything like that. Just had a comment. You know, was for years hurt by something that I'd said and I didn't even remember saying it. I could not recall it at all. And it didn't even sound like me, but in those situations, I just think you're, I mean, I'm just like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I don't have any explanation or defense. It's amazing just, how well people respond to a humble, gentle reaction when confronted. And, you know, and I wrote an epilogue to the book, which is, which is where I talk directly to the reader. And I go through some of these things where I say, Hey, here's some thoughts for you some things that might be in your head that you can hopefully nip in the bud here before they kind of blow out of proportion. So I was trying to, at the end, get to the heart of the reader too. And, and again, I count myself as a reader as much as I am the author. Yeah. Well, the book, I haven't mentioned it since the beginning. It's Bully Pulpit, <laughs> Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. The author is Michael Kruger. It's published by Zondervan. Um, I knew I was going to be passionate about this topic. I knew it was going to be a good uh, but also intense discussion. So thanks, uh, Mike, for your wisdom in the book. I would just also say for your friendship um, in even the writing and preparation of this uh, of this book, um, as we've talked through some of these things, and um, and for the blessing that this book is going to be um, for the church. It, ironic, not ironically, I think it's the way it works in the kingdom by confronting the by f- staring at. I mean, by, by confronting the problem, we're going to see God's grace yeah. to help us to be able to move forward. Well, thank you, my friend. I really appreciate your encouragement and prior conversations before this one and in this one too. And it's. Uh, it's a blessing to be able to talk with you about it. And you and you have great insights yourself. And I'm excited to see how God might use this book. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.